Some of us can't help but be category designers, but for others, it's a choice to adopt that strategy. And we explore that in this episode with Brad Luttrell. Welcome to the Category Thinkers Podcast, a feature of the Category Thinkers community. And while other category design podcasts teach you about past successes and high-level frameworks, we're different. We teach you about the messy middle of being in the throes of category design. And that's why we have this conversation titled, Do You Need Category Design or Is It a Choice? And in this episode, Brad Luttrell joins us to talk through how he found category design a year and a half ago, why it was a strategy hauler commerce needed to adopt, and what he has done to design the social commerce as a service category ever since. Talking through it with our co-founder, John Ruji. They talk about whether category design is a choice or a need and why, how he rethought his product strategy with a category lens, and what he has done to build a dominant moat through word of mouth by niching down and radically differentiating. And if driving word of mouth is important to you at trade shows, I suggest you check out one of our sponsors, my company, BeTheStage.Live. And we've seen companies spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to show up at events for the sole purpose of creating awareness and driving leads. But when your booth is one out of hundreds, prize wheels and merch just make you blend in with everyone else. Attendees feel this because they're trying to avoid eye contact with you while trying to figure out if their kid is going to like your giveaway, which makes your presence at the show a misfire and the follow-up messages as generic as that branded thermos. BeTheStage.Live turns you into the talk of the trade show. We convert your booth into a live podcast studio where attendees are invited to share their expertise. The lights, cameras, and action make the onlookers stop in their tracks and get pulled in. Then we package up the content into something they can reshare while the event is still going, amplifying your on-site presence and creating a digital word-of-mouth engine. After the event, you're the one follow-up they're actually looking forward to. You want help with that? Check us out at BeTheStage.Live. And if you need help radically differentiating or creating a point of view, check out our other sponsors, the Category Design Advisors. You can check them out at CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. They host these free weekly strategy sessions they call office hours, where any team that needs some help with category, whether it's trying to work out your POV with them, get some advice on how to align your team around category, just get a better understanding of where to get started. You can go to CategoryDesignAdvisors.com, book their office hours, and hop on a call with Damp and John themselves. And finally, what we really like for you to do is to stop listening to the conversation and be a part of it. And you can do that by joining our free Slack community at CategoryThinkers.com. There, you're going to find over 600 other category curious, category capable, category designers just like you working out their POVs, sharing content, and helping each other succeed. One of the great perks is our live events that we host. We just wrapped one up with Sangram Vajra this week that we're publishing on the podcast next week. Let me tell you, you're going to want to wish that you were there to get in on the conversation and pick Sangram's brain. So don't miss the next one. 
go to CategoryThinkers.com, join the community, and stop just listening to these conversations and become a part of them. So now I leave you with this conversation with Brad Luttrell with John Ruggi kicking us off. Enjoy. Brad, we've had a few conversations about category design. And what I like about your story is someone on your team actually joined our community and I struck up a conversation with them. I think they mentioned category thinkers to you. And then we were able to strike up a conversation and we've just had a great dialogue from there. So I've enjoyed hearing your story as a CEO, as a founder, as a category designer. But why don't you give us your version of of your business and how you started thinking about category design and, and the discipline? Yeah, to, I'll, I'll try to give a condensed version of that. First, thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it, guys. Um, excited to tell a little bit of our story as we go through this. But I, I started off building a social media company and we went through COVID. Everything was going great pre-COVID. And then we had to pivot and find a new revenue stream. We launched a, a shop and we started building into social commerce, leaning into that. And, you know, for several years, I've been doing really well at that. But as we wanted to grow faster, we saw an opportunity to take the tech that we had built within our little niche community, which was focused on outdoorsmen and women, you know, hunting and fishing, selling hunting and fishing gear. We saw an opportunity though to get outside of our vertical, to get outside of our own shop and to expand. And we started working on this uh, this year. So building this new product, launched the brand in May for this new product. And this summer, I've been trying to learn about, you know, just refreshing myself or, you know, trying to push myself to think through this product expansion. And this guy on my team has been all into this guy named Chris, his podcast. And he keeps telling me about Christopher's podcast and he keeps sending me podcasts to it. And sometimes I'd listen to him. And I kind of remembered this one day this summer that this guy had a book. And I was like, oh, I should read that book. And I listen to books all the time. And I, you know, I'll go from a business book to a a novel. Like I just read Moby Dick just because I'd never read it. And I was like, I got to read it. It's American classic. And then I'll pop back over and read Elon Musk, Musk bio. And then I'll go off and read, you know, whatever. I'm all over the place, right? Well, this summer I started reading Play Bigger. And because this guy on my team, Braden, had kept mentioning it. And so I I started reading it or listening to it and I'm mowing the lawn one day and it all starts to really rapidly come together. And I mean, I remember what part of my yard I was standing in when I was, I kind of saw that I was not thinking about the way we had been looking at this product correctly. And so it, it took me into this deep dive through working through this process, kind of, you know, starting to use some of the mindsets or the the tactics that the the book talks through and you know through languaging and you know just differentiation and I started talking to Braden about it and he's already started on a he's got a word doc already started from front that he's kind of working on I'm like oh my gosh like I start to see the things I'm hearing in the book and but on that day that it all all really hit me I actually realized that we were thinking of our new product entirely not wrong, but just short-sighted. So we mm-hmm. had an opportunity to really carve out something unique. And, you know, I could talk through a little bit of what that product was. We basically had taken the our shop and we're giving the ability for publishers or websites that have news content or written content to add a shop, right? There's a couple of challenges with that that I started to really think through and realize through reading Play Bigger in that, you know, we needed to scale faster. You know, that through all the examples that I was hearing I'm thinking of the sales cycle of landing a publisher three to six months, three to six months. And I'm thinking like, how are we as a startup going to be able to scale fast enough 
you know, for lightning strikes or for word of mouth. Like we we can't do this one site at a time, three or four a year. We've got to be faster. And just all- for a little context there. So just to make sure we understand that business model, you had a bit uh, a solution where a business that had a lot of content that had an audience could could add an e-commerce component. Yeah. And then basically monetize that audience for lack of a better term. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And you were finding a lot of friction. It was just a very... It's a slow sales cycle. I mean, it's just a big decision to make to change your entire platform Mm -hmm. to have this shop. But yeah, we were taking... We were basically offering brands and we still do. We offer brands that have large audiences and they lean on the affiliate model. So they're linking out to Amazon or wherever. And you know, we had a better solution. And Mm -hmm. I, I realized through through this thinking, reading through Play Bigger, that if we took this same product and brought it to creators or influencers, we could grow much faster. We we would solve a problem. You know, it's creating a whole a whole category for them because they don't think like a publisher does. You know, they are really like more day to day. They're not taking, they're not looking at this of, you know, two years of historical data from our affiliate dashboard. And we can see that we, you know, all this reporting and analytics and all this stuff. It's like, no, dude, I just want to make money, right? Like they want to be able to move fast and make Mm -hmm. money. And it hit me that we should, instead of building this big, heavy, bloated enterprise product that we were thinking about, we should be building something that's lean and mean and can work with creators and help them monetize because they don't know how to think like a business. You know, the, a lot of the, even a, I mean, some of the large influencers who have millions of followers are still trying to figure out how to run the business. Mm-hmm. And for them, there is no solution. When you're pitching a publisher, you know, we were better, right? And it, it, and when we went to the creators, we were different. We were different than any other way that they had thought to monetize mm-hmm. because we were solving a lot of problems. They don't have to go out and get brand deals. They don't have to go out and pitch sponsors. They get paid more money than affiliates. So I mean, literally, I, I stopped mowing, I paused the book, and I started just typing like a madman into my phone when I kind of realized this. The next day, I went into the office at five o'clock in the morning, and I turned up obnoxiously bad music, like just white noise in the background, and rocked out for three hours while I mapped out two years worth of roadmap on what we should be working on. And we started building that product, and it's live with 30 shops now. And your old version was called Go Wild, right? And that's still a, a yeah. business that you're running and that your new one is called Holler Commerce, correct? Yeah, Holler is a product of Go Wild. So the we've basically taken, it's a white label version of Go Wild's e-com, so e-commerce mm-hmm. technology. So, you know, as a publisher or a creator, you can sign up and set up your own shop and you can sell any of the brands that we sell. You don't have to go out and get permission or, you know, any any extra paperwork or, or securing any documentation, like you just, it's go, push button and go. You can push button, launch brand, and you have a shop now that is yours. And, you know, unlike the affiliates, there's no attribution window, which means like, you know, typically if you click on an, a creator's link, there's a time window of which they get credit for the sale. So if you buy something on Amazon within 24 hours, that creator will make a cut of that. But if you don't, if you buy on hour 25 or beyond, they don't get paid. So with our shop, you get paid forever. It's your shop, right? Like I'm not tracking a window. So there's a lot of big differences in what we're doing. And and that's what we saw. Like when we were pitching the publishers, we have a better version of what they do in their mind because Mm -hmm. they have all this data that they're comparing us against, but the creators have nothing. They're like, I don't know. Some brand paid me $20,000 last year, or this group gave me an affiliate code, but they're kind of all over the place. And we're pitching something that's totally different that they can own. And so that realization for us sent us down this laser focused path since july we've been laser focused on 
building out this category of so this version of social commerce that we see that I, I haven't found since we've started down this path, I haven't found anyone that's really doing what we're doing and how we're how, thinking of affiliate marketing in the way we are. You know, one thing that tr- triggered kind of an aha moment for me was when you described showing it to publishers, I think is the term you were using, and they were saying you're better, right? And that's just typical comparison, competitive market landscape. But then when you showed it to creators or influencers, all of a sudden you were different. And that to me is the big aha moment is when you feel different, you see different. And all of a sudden you can see that category. You'll never unsee it. So you have to set forth to build it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the difference is going through a meeting and someone says, that's really cool. Like, that's what your mom would tell you because she doesn't understand it. Right. It's like, oh, that seems really neat. You know, (laughs) good job, Brad. But when I started showing creators, you know, I would send them a screenshot of what we were working on in the the dashboard or, you know, a lot of these guys I'm friends with from working at Go Wild for years with them. And I started getting back texts like, holy hell or OMG, I can't wait to try this out. And then they would start asking questions about it and they were getting more and more engaged in it, more interested versus again, going back to the, not that the publishers, it's just a big, it's a a lot different for them. You know, again, they have data to compare it to, even if it is a lot different in truth, the way they were seeing it, because they had data to compare it to, they had an experience with a similar product in their mind. You know, we were just a better version. And honestly, what we were finding, they would tell you it's better, but the risk, you know, someone putting their job on the line to try this new thing that it came with inherent risk. So even if they thought it was better, they had a pretty good thing already going. So the pain of changing might be a little tough. Now we're still, you know, I just came out of a meeting where we're still pitching publishers because they have huge audiences. You know, the ones we we just talked to could do 30 million uh, people a month on our shop. And that's a lot to us. But th- what we found is we can just get the sales cycle is easy with creators. They get it. They can start publishing content to promote their shop on day one. And then a lot of them do. So it's a lot faster. And, you know, when we started thinking through, we're a startup, we don't have this giant budget to go throw, you know, a Salesforce size party. How are we going to do this? Word of mouth of getting, seeing other creators, like if all of a sudden 30 creators that you follow are using this product, it's going to win over other creators. You know, oh, I see that the, this guy who's one of the top in hunting is using this product to promote his, he's got a shop. And now I'm seeing another one's got a shop. Like those are our versions of the lightning strikes is trying to build up some momentum there. To, to where, you know, all of a sudden, it, it's like when Patreon came out, you know, all of a sudden, every podcaster you listen to was promoting their Patreon. And it was kind of the same thing. We're kind of replicating some of that kind of momentum behind it. Yeah. Well, Brad, I want to give other startup founders and CEOs, especially early stage ones, a chance to hear from you, how you discovered and really unpacked the problem that you're solving with Holler Commerce. Because I think, you know, in conversations we've had, You've educated me on how the affiliate and the creator economy began, how it evolved, and through that evolution, it created a lot of issues that haven't really served those types of folks very well, especially when it comes to how Amazon and platforms like TikTok operate. So can you kind of walk us through that problem, how that problem has evolved and how it's gotten to a point where there really wasn't a good solution for creators, for influencers to, to run their business and, and be successful? Yeah. So, you know, think back to the start of e-com because that's where affiliate marketing really gets started. And at the start of e-com, you have people who built audiences and they wanted to monetize by linking to other sites. And so affiliate marketing was born by creating the tracking 
for the, those kinds of, of efforts. So, you know, today those mm -hmm. exist in actual link tracking or can exist in codes, but the technology has been, you know, it's changed, but I mean, it's been the same concept since the birth of e-com. As, as, as long as the e-com has been around, affiliate marketing has been around. And for e-commerce, I guess you could say that affiliate, the affiliate mindset of like commissions or fees go back as old as sales, right? Like forever. Yeah. But this modern version of tracking that and attributing it to a sale has been around for a long time. What we've seen with the growth, there's been a few things that have happened. I mean, one is the privacy shift that's happened. You know, Apple is raining terror on digital marketers right now with their privacy focus. And that's starting to leak out to, you know, Google's taking efforts that are making traffic tracking difficult. That started to hit affiliate marketing attribution. I mean, they're making pivots on how they're tracking to try to combat that. But I mean, in the eyes of some of these big tech companies, they don't want you tracking their the users of their products through multiple platforms, right? They don't want you to have that access. And so the tracking's a become a problem. And we saw this as a retailer. You know, we go out was a retailer using affiliate marketing. We have mm -hmm. 200 people using our affiliate program currently that we're about to shut down to push holler. But we've seen what, what you get into is there's all this misattribution, you know, with codes get leaked. You guys have probably heard of Honey. Honey mm -hmm. is notorious for stealing or people upload creator codes. And now, thanks to Honey, you know, you have maybe this code might be getting used 20 times a day and it's all getting attributed to this creator. So you're not only losing the 10% off the top, you're having to pay that creator 10%. So your margin, if you're a retailer, can really get slashed because of affiliate marketing. And it's bad attribution. And so we we realized that we had technology that other brands wanted because they were telling us. I mean, for four years, I've had randomly people would come up and ask us like, hey, could you white label that for my industry? And the answer was always, we're not ready for that. We're still building our tech. And we were for a long time. But last year, we finished up a big project that really put us in a position to where we could integrate with anything. We could do Shopify, WooCommerce, BigCommerce, Magento. EDI, which is kind of like the API for e-commerce for people that don't follow it closely. But we were ready to, we could sell any product, right? And so I just happened to meet a group out of Nashville, Savage Ventures, that had a website that they were working with. And we started talking to them about what we were doing. And they said, oh, that's really cool. We tried, we've tried to figure that out. And it's, it seems like a product that you guys could just work with us on and we could license it, that kind of deal. So the that conversation started as I was just starting to think about, we should really be white labeling our tech. And so I kind of had my first client fall in our lap before we even got to a point of you know rolling it out. We publicly announced it in May. I landed a contract with them in June and we launched their site in September. But along the way, you know, we recognized with the creator side, we started thinking through more of how much better this was than affiliates because we had lived it. You know, I've had misattribution. I've paid creators out for $30,000 in sales that they probably didn't drive, right? And it sucks. I mean, it eats into your margin. You can't say for sure that they didn't do that, but it's like you can look at the product catalog that this customer's buying and you know it doesn't relate at all to what that that creator was supposed to be promoting. And it's not their fault. It's just the internet, right? So all these problems were rolling up into our own affiliate program. And a lot of it was around attribution. And we're like, we have a way that we can solve for this for both publishers or the creators. Like they hate codes too, because you know what happens? They do 40 podcast episodes with, hey, use code Joe 10 and you can get 10% off. And then the brand's like, hey, your code got leaked. You got to start using, you know, JCB 10. And they're like, oh my God, I, it's in 40 episodes that people are still listening to. This sucks, right? 
And so now the creator's pissed because they have to go through and edit all this content, re-upload it, or they have to change out links on their site. And with what we've done, it's like, no, all that linking, all that code stuff is gone. Your shop is your shop. It'll always be your shop. Those links aren't ever going to change, you know, because someone changed affiliate partners or, you know, tracking whatever. And we aren't leaning on codes. We're really leaning on their relationship. Now we'll do codes every now and then, but it's more around a like flash sale, like a time period of a a 30 day sale or something like that. It's not the core of how they're tracking. So, you know, through working with dozens of creators over the last couple of years, we felt the pain. We, we knew that they were like, like, Hey, I think they're going to love this. And they do, you know, so it was, it's ironic that we had kind of lived through that as a retailer, but I think it's really what helped us recognize the pain point on our side as a retailer and also knowing the pain points of the creators because we had sponsored so many over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what you just described, I want to try to unpack it back uh, to our listeners because we use this uh, framework we call the category formula. And if you've listened to the show before, you've heard Damp or I or Pablo talk through it. And it's this idea that when you combine a change in context, that often reveals something that's missing in the world. And when you really home in on what that missing is and you come up with an innovation to solve that, that begets a new category. And Damp, I'll ask you in a second for your perspective on this, but Brad, what it sounds like you just really revealed for us was this creator and this affiliate economy grew. That was the kind of the change in context. It, it became this like a small piece of the pie to something that was substantial, both for retailers, but also for the affiliates themselves. But there wasn't really this good way to get the attribution right. There was this kind of mismatch between what sales, a code might have said somebody was driving versus what actually happened in the real world. And so it created the situation where both retailers and influencers and affiliates are unhappy with that arrangement. But there's a missing because there's not a technology. There's not really a way of bridging these two together in a way that was it made sense. And so you, your innovation was to then flip that model, almost turn it around on itself to where instead of the creators relying on these codes, they're actually adding the e-commerce back to their own experience and you know websites or, or other you know digital properties that they might manage. And that's kind of the innovation that you're building. Yeah. Damp, do you yeah. have anything that you want to? add or any color on that no i think the part that i um i'm interested in diving a little deeper into because it the category itself i can kind of see how it evolved how it emerged what the context shift was but the the point of view of your category you know your your story do you find that creators are able to turn around once they understand your category they turn around and they can repeat your point of view to some other creator. And that's that word of mouth movement you're looking for. And I'm really curious to hear about that because in in most cases, companies are looking at other ways to mobilize their category. You're truly relying on word of mouth as a major part of it. So, you know, tell us about your point of view and tell us about how people are re- receiving it. Yeah. So it's interesting you bring that up because I was going to give a follow-up to something else that happened and we recognized as we're talking to creators about, hey, it seems like you know this doesn't work for you guys. It doesn't work for us. What if we had a better way? You know, doing our research, we find out these creators are all trying to launch their own shops, and they don't have any money, right? They don't have money to go out and buy fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory, which is a bare minimum on really getting started on what they would need to start a shop. 
And so we're talking to them and they're, they hate affiliates. They, they know they can move products. They've worked with affiliates before, but there's all these inherent problems. And they're like, well, screw it. I'll sell my own stuff. Right. Well, they start looking into that and it's like, oh my God, now I've got to do, I've got to have inventory. I got to pay for inventory. I've got to ship it myself or pay someone else to ship it. I've got to deal with customer service. And so we start unveiling that they're all, they're not thinking of a solution as like, man, I wish there was this tech play that I could just plug into and sell their inventory. Their only solution that they had thought of was that they had to start their own shop. So in their mind, they're kind of trapped in this awful environment of like, well, I hate affiliates, but I kind of got to keep doing this because it's the only way unless I go start my own shop. And then we're coming up to them. It's like, hey, wouldn't you like to start your own shop without having to spend any money or ship anything? And they're like, oh my God, that's awesome. I didn't even know you could do that, right? And so the point of view for them I've actually had, I've got one guy who sent us a list of 20 people that are huge creators in our space. He's like, I can get you to all those, you know, he's like, is there any way that we can talk commissions, right? You know, he knows that he's got the power players. I was like, yeah. And he's going out and telling these stores or these creators that they can start their own store. And it's funny because sometimes he's sending us screenshots back of their feedback. I don't even have to tell him the response. Like one of the, one of the creators was like, they said, Oh yeah, they don't have enough of the brands that are we're sponsored by, so I can't do the shop, right? Because we have 900 brands, but it's, it's a lot of brands, but it's not all the brands. So we didn't have the brands that they that they wanted. And the creator came back and he said, "You don't understand. You can sell anything, even if you're not sponsored by them." Which is what I would have said. Mm. And so he already he gets it because he's lived through this. He's an influencer himself, he's a micro influencer. But he, his, the point of view is, I mean, it's exactly what we would have done in a sales meeting. So I think that's where it's really exciting for us is that it has aligned really well to the experience that they've had. Our point of view was pretty well developed on what they were thinking because we had been working with them for so long and hearing a lot of those complaints. And we've really built the product around their feedback. You know, I think you have to be careful with that. I've, I've built a social app for years. And if we had done everything our audience had asked us to do, it'd be the most Frankenstein ugliest piece of shit you've ever seen. But, you know, because people will ask for everything and you get a lot of one-off requests. But when you start to see trends and what people are asking for, it's really starts to make sense on investigating it. And so we're working with a lot of these creators now and asking them what they've liked about the affiliate process in the past. And, you know, we're rapidly, you know, we're launching product every two weeks now based around that feedback. And so the point of view is getting aligned more and more because the product is kind of been co-designed by them to some degree. You know, I think we have to be careful about that again. Like I don't want to hand over the keys to 20 people, but I mean, with some of the creators we have, you know, this uh, one woman in particular, Macy uh, Watkins is massive influencer. She has 1.7 million uh, followers across her TikTok and Instagram. And she knows what she's doing. She's worked with brands. Uh, She's working for a premium and she knows what converts. So we're working with her, you know, and trying to build a product that in the creator's minds, like this solves the needs that I have. I think you hit on this balance of, you sometimes you'll hear like category designers, you don't listen to your customers. And what the intention behind that is like, don't ask people like what features you should build because you risk end up ending up with like very incremental improvements yeah. to, to something and mm-hmm. not with like step change innovations. But what the other, the flip side of that is listen to your customers about the problems that they're facing and then use that insight to develop a new approach. And what I love about your story is you're intimately familiar with the problems that customers have faced. You experienced many of them yourself. 
And then you use that to really inform what the product needed to be. Yeah. I mean, we've taken, you know, if I were to list off some real examples, we've had a lot of people say, I wish I could sell my own stuff through this. And it's like, yeah, that'd be awesome. But you know what? That's rebuilding Shopify within my platform. And if we did that, I wouldn't spend the next six months, you know, trying to build that out and all the syncing up. And it's like the juice isn't worth the squeeze. You know, these guys at the end of the day are not going to move as much of their merch as what they can do with the 900 brands that we have. And so the answer is for us, instead of doing that, we added a very simple feature that's called a link. And you can add a link to your other store. If you have a Shopify site, you can go do that now. And I didn't have to go recreate Shopify. And it worked well enough to get them excited. Like, okay, this works well enough for me. I can link out to this and still have my merch shop. But I didn't have to go think through everything that Shopify has perfected over like the last, what, 10 years or so that they've been around. So, you know, I think in my past life with Go Wild, and it's, you know, and when we were early building that out, we were very like into like we we would have gone and tried to build shopify at times you know Mm -hmm. we didn't always do that but i think at times we were we listened too much to the feedback even though all along the way we said we didn't we're like oh yeah we're gonna we're gonna build the product that they don't know they want right but i can now look back and see that we really were iterating on a lot of their feedback but now we've tried to listen to it and it's like okay i can see what they're asking for but like we're not going to do that so what's an alternative to give it close enough Whereas, you know, this new product we're launching right now totally came out of my co-founder's head, something he conceived of, and we're baking that in. And it wasn't a request, but at the end of the day, like when I started telling the creators about it, it's like, oh my God, that solves a lot of what I'm trying to do with my social content. Like, I still think you have to help them hear, you have to hear their problems and what they're struggling to do. And you still have to solve for that because at the end of the day, people, like if you take the advice of your customers and just people in general, you're going to get the most obvious solution, right? And sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes that's not the best way to go. You, I know a lot of the brands that you've worked with and the evolution of your company was all, you know, started with outdoors. What is the, you know, the movement of the product into other areas where, you know, a true category can be niche like outdoors, a, a category could be broad like Amazon, the everything store. You know, where do you see sort of the short-term and long-term vision? Yeah, short-term, Amazon started off with just books, right? Like, and then they they started to pick off categories that made sense, not necessarily overlap, but that they knew they could own. And we're taking a, a similar mindset. Like, I'm not, I don't think we're going to build Amazon. I think there's one Amazon over the like a thousand year period. But for us, we're looking at, we have, we had Huntfish. We have a lot of brands within that space, probably 600 brands. But when we brought in our first client on the enterprise side, they were a brand that wanted more outdoor gear. And so they like outdoor gear in a traditional sense of like hiking camp. And we had some, but it wasn't great. And it, like our selection sucked. And so we said, okay, you guys come on in. We'll go get those brands. Uh, we'll onboard a distributor that pulls those in. And so we got 250 brands in this. It was hike, camp, and survival. And we did that in 60 days. So now we're in four categories, hunt, fish, hike, camp. Survival's kind of there. I mean, it's not like a, a huge category for us. But the way I'm looking at it is the outdoor space is absolutely ginormous. The hunt, fish space is multi-billion a year in e-commerce. So we could grow this product a long time in that space. But we're as we add in new verticals, what I'm interested in are verticals that overlap with hunt, fish, hike, camp. So Fitness is one that we've identified that overlaps really well with that audience. 
you know, if you're not in the hunt fish space, you probably think of like fat guy in a tree drinking beer hunting. And like, it's not the case with this persona for uh, most people, you know, a lot of people are physically fit or at least more physically minded. So we can move fitness products to that audience as well. It contributes to our go wild product set. It contributes to our first hauler partner on the outdoor company that I mentioned. And then it gives us a new vertical that we can start to expand into that is, you know, there's tons of fitness influencers and creators that we can move. So it's a great space. Like there's a lot of thought leaders within that space. Maybe you could argue there's too many, right? Like there's a lot of people have fitness blogs, content, but our focus is to get those top tier people and work work with the brands that they want. So, but anything I bring in just for them, I can sell on these other platforms. That's the beauty of our tech is that it's anything I bring in for one can be sold on any of them, all, all the others. So the expansion will be thoughtful. So, you know, fitness is one, but then moving into like, it may be other outdoor categories that overlap for a while. Like it's a, the outdoor industry is $887 billion of an economic impact every year. That's not gear sold, but just a uh, perspective. Actually, I think the new stat from this year was even bigger. It's approaching a trillion dollar industry, but you know, there's a plenty of room for growth within just that space. So our plan is to keep picking off niche verticals. You know, golf is one example that makes a lot of sense because a lot of these brands like Garmin makes golf products, but they also make hunt and fish products. So we already sell Garmin's if we can, we we have access to golf products. Bushnell is another one that, you know, they make range finders for golf and for hunting. So that's one that we might move into that starts to leave a little bit of that strategy I was talking about of like, I could sell that across all like golf's not going to sell on go wild. It's just not, Mm -hmm. but there starts to, what we're looking for is in a Venn diagram of either customer base or ease of access to those products. You know, there's some overlap there. So I think we can do that for the next two years easily and and stay within this, you know, outdoor niche that we have. I get a lot of people asking us like, oh, you should do this in beauty. And I'm like, yeah, man, the beauty space is the most innovative space in social commerce. But the problem with that is that it's the most innovative space in social commerce. Like, right, we'd have more competition there's it's insanely saturated from a tech perspective whereas in our outdoor space we're the ones in the game like when you think of social commerce and hunting and fishing you're talking about our brand and so you know as we continue to expand with hauler as a product of our company in this space it's you know we have we can carve out a, a much stronger foothold and own it a lot better than trying to go compete with some really innovative cool products in beauty in a space that i clearly would not understand like as a ceo (laughs) Well, it's cool that you mentioned the Amazon example because that's one of our go-tos. We think about starting with a bookstore and then expanding over time. That's kind of a dynamic that when we talk to companies about category design, we have to sort through. If you are only thinking about the bookstore, you may not build something that's meaningful enough to really fulfill your ambitions and, and reach the scale that you need. But if you start with trying to build the everything store all at once, then you're trying to boil the ocean. And that's not really feasible for you to implement and really from a oftentimes the market's not ready at large to adopt something like that so you've got to think about how do you stair step your way into that there's a framework that we refer to called the adjacent possible which kind of speaks to that happy middle between what's possible today but what's also meaningful enough to be exciting and and different enough for people to get excited about and so I, i like how you are already thinking about what that stair step looks like finding a space that is, you know, you're pr- providing something that's different and, and a little bit disruptive and um, innovative there, but you're not just thinking about this from a, you know, hunting and, and fishing perspective. 
Yeah, I mean, our, our thoughts are I can keep growing this within this space for the next 18 months. And then if, you know, if Golf Digest called us up tomorrow and said, hey, we saw mm. this outdoor site that you guys do the shop for them. Can you do that in golf? The answer is hell yes, we can. And we can't like I could have all the golf brands that they would probably want within 60 to 90 days with our tech onboarding and the way we do things. So, you know, it's not that we would walk away from that. It's just, you know, like I said, the enterprise side is a long sale cycle. Um, you know, if we're going to put all that effort in, it needs to be trying to get brands where we can offer them a really good product selection. We built our catalog with Go Wild when we started three years ago in the same way. We didn't go out and try to cover everything in hunting and fishing. I mean, there's subsets of hunting and fishing. And so there was this new evolving category called mobile hunting, which is um, exactly what it sounds like. It's a much more mobile way to hunt a white-tailed deer. And we own that. And now we have more brands than Bass Pro or Cabela's. We have more than Amazon. Amazon doesn't even have close to what we have in that category because we hyper-focused on that. And it, it was an area that no one else could touch. And then we've built out from there. You know, we started adding accessories that go along with that. And now our hunt category is really strong. And so we're doing the same thing in fishing right now. We started off with bass fishing and, you know, it's kind of started over time adding in brands that complement that. And, I, and that's like a niche example in a product space. But I think you have to do that with verticals, too. You know, you, it, it would kill us if we expanded, if we tried to go out and get golf and beauty and survival and off-roading and all this stuff all at once. Like, there's no way we could do it. We would die trying to build those all, the, all that out. Let me ask you a kind of a poignant question back on category design. Do you see category design as a strategy of choice or a strategy of necessity? Well, I think it's a strategy for us. It's a strategy of choice. I don't think it's necessary that you create your own category design, but it might, if you don't choose to, I think there's outcomes that are going to happen that may not be what you want. I think it gives you the best shot at the outcome you want if you choose to design it, right? Like the, for us, carving this out was something we chose to do, but I saw it as necessary to getting to the size that we want to be. You know, the if we had just done a better, if I had marketed Holler as a better affiliate version instead of something totally different, you know, I don't know that it would, we're trying to stir up as much attention as possible. We're trying to, you know, I know the word disruptive gets beat up a lot, but like, you know, we're trying to have that kind of attitude about it. And I think in order to conquer and build out, I didn't even really mention what we named our category, but it's not just social commerce. Like we're seeing it as social commerce as a service, which is our internal languaging. I'm not using that publicly because it's confusing, but it makes a lot of sense for us as we've defined this out. But, you know, seeing social commerce as a service and defining it out was not necessary, but I think it's necessary for our goals. Like we could have tried to run the company without doing that. I think it just you know, would it have been, would we scale as fast? Would it be as clear in differentiation or would we have kind of settled into like what investors call a nice little business? You know, we don't want to build a nice little business. I want to build something that is, you know, massively scalable. So we've chosen to lean into this because I'm answering you in both, I guess is what I'm saying. Like I've chosen to do this because I think it's necessary for what we want to do. But like as any business, I think you have a choice. It's just a matter of like, what are your goals? Mm -hmm. I always think that when I'm when I was reading Play Bigger, I'm like, not everyone has to build a. You could have a, a nice little business that pays you a lot of money every year, and you're comfortable. And it's just different strokes for different folks, right? Like I have friends who would never do. They wouldn't want the stress of what we're doing and the unknown. And it's like they like showing up to work every day, and you know, having clear goals. They're going to be able. To, they know how to make their boss happy. They they go home at five. They don't think about work again. 
Um, and, and that's fine. You know, I think if, but if you're trying to build something that's meaningful and massively different and memorable, you know, I think this is a great recipe on how to think about building your business. I had a buddy ask me the other day, um, he's got a product and he was trying to figure out how to pitch it. And it's like, man, it's just your, everything you're telling me is great, but it's so boring. Like there's no story behind this. And I didn't know how to help him. And normally I'm a talker and I can help you. Like I'm a, I've been told I'm a really good pitcher from a business perspective. And that's why he called me. It was like, I need to figure out how to pitch my business. And I was like, I don't know your business well enough to understand what is exciting about this. What's different. I mean, you were directly telling me that you were the same as your competitor. And if you're telling like, as an investor, I'm like, okay, well, I'm out. And I just told him to go replay bigger. Cause I think it'll inspire him to think of, you know, okay, there actually is this niche that we're doing different, like, or this is an area that we can expand into and really build a meaningful, sizable, scalable business versus like, again, like a nice little business that, yeah, we're not that different than anybody else, but yeah, we do 10 million a year in revenue and kind of stagnant, but I'm, I'm stable, right? Like those are two, two totally different mindsets. It's interesting that, you know, I've been sitting here thinking about emerging categories within your sweet spot, you know, the outdoors. And as you're sourcing brands and products that you, you're interested in, in working with, I think it'd be kind of interesting knowing and understanding what category design's about must be giving you a leg up on what products to choose, you know, and who to pursue and who to double down on. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of that's at the core of our other product, Go Wild. You know, I've talked a lot about Holler and how we're changing affiliates, but I mean we have a lot of data behind all these products because we're a social commerce platform. So if people are tagging the gear that they use on their social content in the same way that influencers do on other platforms, but we let Joe Schmo do that. And so we have, I mean, it's millions of records on how gear gets used. And I think we have a lot. It's like the insight I mentioned a minute ago. We went into this new category that Cabela still doesn't cater to. They have one brand. We have eight, which doesn't sound like a lot of brands, but like that's pretty much it for that category. It's a very emerging category within the space. But you're talking about something that has 15 million people a year and the average setup is 500 bucks, like people throw down. This was a huge chunk of our revenue last fall because we invested in this. And I think a lot of that though, was because we saw, we had all this podcast data of people learning to mobile hunt. And so it's like, oh man, we need more mobile hunting brands. I think this is going to explode. And then we started paying attention. It's like, you know what? This is only going on in archery. This is mostly people hunting with archery. There's no reason that this shouldn't become a trend in rifle hunting too. And, and, you know, because we knew from our data and just in general, you can assume that most people rifle hunt. So we were able to make a bet on that. And there's other categories that we've kind of leaned into in that regard too. With I'll try not to turn this into a hunting podcast, but I do think like you can kind of start to think of, it does put a different hat on your, like you thinking through category design and, you know, it puts a different hat on how you're kind of thinking about merchandising the brands in the e-com space of, so you don't really want to pull in a, you don't want to spend 60 days, like I talked about before, bringing in a bunch of brands that are kind of duds and they're flat or declining. You know, we want brands that have upside. I want brands I'm going to be able to make money on for the next 20 years and, and increasing year over year, not something that's just like a, like it, we kind of think about our merchandising of if it's something, if it's commodity, something everybody else has, and it's, you know, everybody's just pretty much looking for the best price. That's probably not a category we want to move into. Designing a category that is emerging within one industry and i know that it's large enough you could survive and grow and be a beast in that industry but 
do you keep an eye on your product development in such a way that you say, okay, if we ever do go into beauty or if we ever do go into clothing or we go into, you know, whatever it might be, audiovisual, let's make sure the product fits those industries and keep it category focused. So you've got a category led growth model versus, you know, industry specific led or do you, do you keep an eye into the vision? Yeah, some of what you're asking about there is why I said I wouldn't move into beauty right now. I don't understand it. I, we don't have anybody on our team that would understand it. And that doesn't mean it's just dudes. I mean, even the women on our team, I don't think would be experts in that space. And there's going to be differences in what we would need to do to cater to that space. So I think what we're asking ourselves, is there more value in expanding rapidly into other verticals? Or is there more value because we're building a SaaS product. I told you it's social commerce as a service is how we're thinking of this internally. And is there more value in creating a product that, you know, right now we're on a free tier. Eventually we're going to charge for this, but we're kind of in a beta. But could we offer improved analytics or a newsletter type functionality for creators or subscriptions or tipping, you know, could we continue to evolve onto this product that really starts to define out something that, I mean, you want to talk about being different. No one does a, a combined version of what I just said. And is there more value in like owning this entire outdoor industry with this product? Or should we, will we take a lesser product that's more stripped down and not as focused on one industry and scaling it? And I think that honestly is something we're still debating and we will probably continue to debate until you know we have significant traction i think until we feel like we've really owned either owned outdoors or we're like super profitable and content that's the point when we will like chase moving into those other verticals outside of like the the obvious ones like the moves like fitness are obvious and that's i don't see that as this big leap but moving into things like like the mommy blogger scene, like that would be a whole new endeavor for us just to get out of the beauty example and show like another one that I know is huge. Like that is my wife buys everything that mommy bloggers put out there, like whatever there, any link you can think of, she's probably bought it. My entire living room was acquired through mommy blogger affiliate links. Right. But we know that would be stepping into a space that we don't understand very well. And I don't think our product there, like maybe 60 to 70% of it would apply, but it's just generic or, or maybe in it may just inapplicable enough that it might not be in our best interest to jump into those categories just yet. I think our short-term thoughts are like, let's build a really robust product in this space that we understand really well. Yeah. And I might yeah, be just, wrong on that. I'm, I could be, I might be wrong on that because, you know, we're still strategically thinking through all this for the last six years, we've been a social commerce app that, you know, we kind of knew what we were doing even after the pivot. So we're, we've kind of started over as a company in some ways with this new product that we're working on. So, you know, we're still ba we're back to trusting our gut on a lot of stuff, whereas we kind of gotten data oriented in what we were doing with Go Wild. Now with this new product, a lot of it is, you know, you're, you're, it's guesswork and then evaluating as you go. Yeah. Brad, maybe just one question to, to end on today. You shared a lot about your vision and how you think about strategy and short-term versus long-term goals and really appreciate you unpacking that all for us. Question I have for you is when you think about your team, you, you know, your, your product team, your marketing team, I know you work on, you know, sales and partnerships. What are you doing to have this conversation with the team and keep them aligned and think like category designers and always 
you know, impart this lens into the company. Can you just share your thoughts on that? Yeah. So Braden and I are meeting semi-regularly. Braden's the one I mentioned that got me into this. We meet semi-regularly on this overall. So we have a, a category growth strategy document that we go over and talk through any gaps that we haven't thought through. And then we have a bi-weekly meeting every other week meeting that's company-wide and we'll talk through how things are going you know and then also i'm hammering into the the team of really the two key things for our growth right now and designing out this category is acquiring creators and then building everyone knows that they should be either building product that helps acquire creators or helps customers check out like how can we make those two smooth those two things smooth as possible and so the acquisition of creators is like easy onboarding easy to use product products that they want you know trying to make this product sticky and then on the customer side any ways that we can improve that customer experience and so we're talking through a lot of the the thoughts behind the category design of what we're trying to build out what's unique giving them the feedback of the the creators and why they would want it this way versus, you know, hey, they've done this with affiliates. They hate that. And trying to just continue to bring out what we're talking about from a category growth perspective into those meetings. And even beyond that, like that's the big meeting every two weeks that we have that they get those kind of spiels. But then I'm pulling forward either Braden or my director of member experience, Erica, into a lot of design meetings to make sure that, you know, as we're thinking everything from like the languaging down to like the actual use case, I want them in meetings they would have not really been in before with Go Out because Go Out, we were in a rhythm. We we had a sprint process, like we knew what we we're building, but this is new. It's a new audience to my engineers. And I want them in the, I mean, they're reviewing designs, they're testing through the product and they're in everything because I want them to continue to advocate for the category that we're creating and keeping that in mind. So we've added quite a few touch points. And then I'm in a lot of meetings I, I wouldn't have normally been in either from the engineering side. I mean, I'm back to like, I'm a copywriter at heart. That's what I came from. And I'm back to like obsessing even over every little line of copy has probably been swapped out and rewritten by me at this point. Because a lot of you know the way things were being generically worded was not in line with how we're trying to speak to the creators and trying to make sure that like I the, the most horrendous thing we could do would be to make this just seem like another affiliate product to them. Like mm -hmm. I need them to understand this is severely different from what anything that they've used in the past. And so, you know, we're spending a lot of time on language, the, the language that's in the product itself and teaching you. So it's pretty, we don't have like a team-wide category design meeting, but the, it is built into everything that we're doing right now in some degree or another. Cool. Well, not, to mention I made, not to mention I made them all read play bigger and so that like when we're referencing things they understand the mindset of which we're operating around you know to, to, i think it's connecting a little faster for them since they all read the book yeah you have the same framework that you're all operating on that's really yeah. key yeah. yeah well thanks for unpacking all that for us today brad any parting thoughts that you want to leave us with no well i again thank you guys for having me on here i think i, I told you guys at the beginning like i'm not an expert on this stuff i'm very much trying to figure it out i think I, I've, I've done sales and marketing for the last 14 years, but this has been really fun for me to unpack a new way to like structure these kind of thoughts. You know, uh, I think I, you see so much bland, banal crap on LinkedIn about people like talking about branding and tagging liquid death CEO because he's done a great job. It's like, yeah, but what's below the brand? Like, what did they actually do? You know, and it seems like 
oh man, I'd have to go off and create this whole new company to do this. But I think a lot of people have an opportunity to do this within their role today, right? Like there's a, with whatever you're doing. And once you start applying this mindset, you can really start to like, it, it scales down really well. And it makes, I think it makes marketing a lot more fun again, like product design a lot more fun again, when you start to think about it and it through this lens. So if you're kind of new to this, like I am and you know, and you're trying to figure out how to do this, like stop thinking that you have to go out and build the next, you know, aluminum water can company to, to be able, like, you don't have to go build a $700 million water company to, to try out, try your hand at category design. There's probably something that you're working on that you can scale down a lot of these, this mindset to. And it does make, it's been really exciting for us to, to be able to kind of think through it like this. I, in some ways, it's funny because I'm like, well, I'm glad I had this new product that we were working on that I could apply this to. But in some ways, I, I kind of, rediscover I discovered this because of the product but I think it's applicable to anything and it's not too late to start thinking like this so yeah. I'll also say if anybody likes this rambling idiot or wants to see anything else I do have I mentioned I think LinkedIn and I do post a lot of content there would love to connect with anybody that found me through your all show I'm watching and I don't engage as much as I probably would like to in in the Slack channel but you know love the connect with anybody on LinkedIn and then I have a newsletter that I send out that some real time learnings of as we've been building this stuff through and you know it's really more focused on startup founders who are not coastal it's called silicon holler but it's bradluttrell.com so if anyone wants to sign up for the be cool too i post weekly on that and it's raw startup thoughts so you know transparent cultural lessons fundraising thoughts the kind of stuff you go through as a founder who's not you know got andres and horowitz on your cap table yeah I love it. Yeah, you're great at just sharing what's on your mind, what you're learning, what you're thinking through. And not everyone's willing to do that and be so open about it. So thank you for that. Thank you for being with us today and all you shared. And uh, yeah, I look forward to following your story going forward. Thanks, guys. There you go. Another conversation designed to help you think like a category designer. Please support our sponsors, CategoryDesignAdvisors.com and BeTheStage.Live because they're the ones footing the bill for this thing so you can enjoy it. But more than anything, we'd love to hear from you, uh, whether it's in our community or if you could leave us a review for this podcast, if you're enjoying this thing, subscribe to it, hit five stars, let us know what you think. We could really, really use that. And don't forget, stop just listening to this thing. Join the conversation by going to CategoryThinkers.com, joining the free Slack community, and come meet the other 500 plus category designers just like you. See you in there.